Well, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, please. We'll pick up there where we left off. And today's message is about this idea that Jesus forgives sins, past, present, and future. So Jesus forgives sins for all time, basically. And that is found this morning in Hebrews 10, 1 through 18. And what the author is going to do this morning is show us this idea of how is it, though, that Jesus can actually forgive sins, not just today, not just yesterday, but tomorrow as well. And that's one of the major things that sets Christianity apart from any other religion out there. There's a few, but one of the biggest would be this. It's the idea that Christianity teaches that salvation or how you're right with God, that is not by your self-effort. It's not about how much you can contribute in order to please God. The irony is Christianity says it's the opposite. Salvation is actually accomplished and given by our God. We don't contribute anything and offer it up. He gives it to us. It's by him, not us. We're saved by faith, we say. What does that mean? Not by works. The works come after salvation. The works, meaning what you can do, what you can contribute, those don't add to or contribute to your salvation. They come after it. Now, within Christianity, though, I want to be fair, within those who are Christians, and I do believe these people are brothers and sisters in the Lord, there has been some debate throughout history among different denominations. They'll say, okay, yes, we're saved by Christ's sacrifice, but are we saved for all eternity, though? Or could a Christian lose their salvation? Could there be a time when someone is in God's grace, but then they're kicked out of God's grace? Or they'll say it another way, they fall away or they fall out of God's grace. And they're, they're no longer forgiven, they're no longer saved. So saved by grace, but do you stay saved? Um, to, again, this is very personal to me. My grandparents were what was called free will Baptist growing up. My own father used to be a free will Baptist pastor. They preached and taught this, that, that you could sin to a point when you fall out of grace and you have to sort of get re-saved all over again. Now, I'm not here to critique any of that. I just want to bring up that there is a view out there and it's going to kind of touch this morning to say, but is that how it works? Once I'm in God's grace, is it up to me to keep myself in God's grace? Well, Hebrews this morning is going to teach us something about our salvation. And he's going to say this, salvation is all of Jesus. It's all of Jesus. And what that means then practically is this, you and I can have the assurance that yes, we are saved for all eternity. Once you put real faith in Jesus as your savior, that is a one-time offered sacrifice to forgive you of your sins, not just once, but all of them past, present, and future. Yes, even the ones you haven't done yet. Hebrews is going to bring up this fascinating reality this morning. I hope I can bring that out. That how, how effective was Jesus' death on the cross, really? How effective was it? It was much more effective than those Old Testament sacrifices. In fact, he's going to say Jesus replaced them. When you read in the Old Testament, they brought bulls and goats. We don't anymore. Why not? Because Jesus replaced all of that because his sacrifice is greater. How effective was 
Jesus' sacrifice. It saves those who put their faith in him permanently, forever. He also is going to address this question. How can we know that, though? How can we know that our salvation, that Jesus' sacrifice, has permanent effect? What assurances could we have that it actually works on our behalf for all eternity? Because, again, let's think about this. I don't know how big of a sin I'll commit next year or five years from now. Does Jesus cover that too? Because we're not there yet. How do I know that he covers those sins as well? Well, the original audience that Hebrews was written to, they would have been very much used to this concept of bringing an animal sacrifice to a priest and they offer it on your behalf to God. That's why it's called Hebrews. These were probably Jews who had converted to Christ. And so they're used to that Old Testament stuff, that system of bringing sacrifice over and over again. They would have been used to that those sacrifices were limited in their effect. The priest constantly having to mediate for them on their behalf. But the author of Hebrews, we don't know his name. I believe it was a pastor probably writing to his church. And he's trying to give them some encouragement here to say this. You don't have to do all of that anymore. You don't have to go through all of that anymore. Why not? Because Jesus is a greater sacrifice that gives you permanent salvation you don't keep bringing animals to the church house and offering them up like the jews of old why not because jesus is your one time offered sacrifice good for all eternity good for forever so he's going to address that this morning here's what i hope you can walk away with today and it's this concept that jesus is one time one time offered sacrifice of himself takes away all of your sins and my sins all the sins of his people who have faith in him for past, present, and future, all of time, all for forever. So Jesus forgives sins past, present, and future. If you would join me in standing out of respect for reading of God's word, I just want to read the first four verses of Hebrews 10. It reads, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would... Not have, or they would not have ceased to be offered, or would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Pray with me for a moment. Lord, thank you for your written word that we can read your thoughts, know your mind, know your truth. Thank you this morning that we have such a deep letter as Hebrews that, yes, it can be complicated at times, but it shows us the realities of the behind the scenes of what what Jesus did when he really died on that cross. He was providing an eternal sacrifice for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for obediently and willingly doing that so that today we can honor you over 2,000 years later for that sacrifice. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. So Jesus forgives sins, past, present, and future. But how does he do that? Well, the first point, let's look at this. Let's call it the permanence of Christ's sacrifice. That'll be the first 10 verses that he shares with us. So Jesus' sacrifice, it's permanent. So the permanence of Christ's sacrifice. Jesus is one time, and I want to keep stressing that, one time offered sacrifice of himself, not a bull or a goat, himself. What happened was it is good for all time. It's permanent in its ability to forgive you of your sins forever, all lasting. So look here at verse one. 
And he says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it, that's the law, it can never by these same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. He's going to make an argument here that, listen, it was impossible for the Old Testament sacrifices, the law, that system, it was impossible that it could forgive someone of their sins forever, or you could say permanently. It was impossible that it could do that. And that's what he's saying here in verse 1. What was the law for? What was it? Well, he calls it a shadow of the good things to come. Shadow meaning it's not the real thing. What do shadows do? You've seen them. Shadows give you sort of an image or a silhouette of the real thing. If you're walking in the sun and you see your shadow over to the side, you would never say, oh, here's me. No, you are you. The shadow is your shadow. The shadow is not the real thing. You're the real thing. The shadow gives sort of an image of you as you're walking. And that's what he's saying here. The law was not the real thing. Christ is the real thing. The law is the shadow of Christ. It was simply reflecting what was yet to come. So the law's point, those sacrifices were never meant to save someone for all eternity. It wasn't the true form, he would say. It wasn't the real image. It was just a shadow or a pre-image of the real one to come. And then he goes on to say that that's what the law was. And if you don't believe that, he says, well, it could never make perfect those who draw near. It could never completely, fully forgive for all eternity those who follow that system of the Old Testament law. Verse 2, he says, because otherwise, if it could, if the law could save someone from their sins for all eternity, then here's what would have happened. They would have brought that bull or whatever animal sacrifice it was, and if it was enough to save them for all eternity, how many times would they have had to offer it? Just once. They would have brought it. Priests would have accepted it on their behalf, offered it up to God one time and done. That's verse 2. He says, otherwise they would have stopped all of those sacrifices over and over. But he says that wasn't how it worked. If, if one sacrifice from the old law could have done it, then the, the, for the sinner there would have offered that up and God would have accepted it permanently for all eternity. And he says there would have been no more consciousness of sin. Now, by consciousness, he doesn't mean that they would never have been aware of their sin. He means more an awareness of guilt. You're guilty standing before the Lord. But the fact that they brought these sacrifices year after year and over and over, that proves his point to say they weren't meant to be permanent. They had another purpose, but they weren't meant to save the person the end of verse 3, he says, In these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. They did it over and over. The point of the law really was to be an act of worship, I would say. And it was meant to be a teaching moment, so to speak. The sinner brought the sacrifices, and it was them expressing faith in a way of saying, God, you have to forgive me. My sins deserve death, but this sacrifice will be offered in my place and it'll be a representation that I deserve the death that this animal just got. But why did they do it over and over? Because it wasn't meant to save them. It was really meant to sort of cleanse them outwardly. It was meant to be a ritual to put them through this constant teaching moment and reminder that you need God's grace over and over and over. And then the Old Testament was pointing people to a time in the future. For them, it was the future. For us, it's the past. But a time in the future when a big sacrifice would come and it would stop all of this need for them happening over and over and over. But they weren't there yet. They lived in that different era, so to speak. So these sacrifices then were a constant reminder of their guilt of sin. Verse 4, he drives the point home very clear. It is impossible 
impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But again, why did God put people through the law then? I ask this question a lot. Why, why go through that? If it was never the way to save people for all eternity, why did God even take them through that in the first place? Why not go straight to Christ? I want to make this point clear. Christ was not plan B for God. He has always been plan A. There was no plan B with God. I don't believe God does plan Bs. There's just God's plan and that's it. Christ was always God's plan from the beginning. Let me share with you a couple of thoughts. Revelation 13, 8 says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of, the, of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now, there's a context to that verse I don't want to get into. It's talking about people worshiping the beasts that are still on earth. I want to draw your attention to the last part of the verse. He says, There are those, though, who have had their names written down in the Lamb's book of life. But notice when he says that happened. Before the foundation of the world. And he tacks on this idea of the Lamb who was slain. So that, to me, proves Jesus as the slain Lamb of God. That was already in God's plan before Genesis 1-1. Before you read in the beginning, Jesus was already set in that plan to be the lamb slain. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 says, But with precious blood of Christ, the verse before that he goes on to say, We were bought with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. But look at verse 20. He, that's Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Again, Peter says, before the foundation of the world, the plan was for Christ to be that innocent, spotless lamb to come and die. I've heard some teachers of the Bible sort of give this tone that the law of the Old Testament failed. And that had the Jews kept it perfectly, then there would have never been a need for a plan B, so to speak, of Jesus. I want you to hear clearly that is not how it works. That's not true. God had one plan to send Christ and die for sins. But how he went about it was in two phases. Phase one was the Old Testament, the law. Phase two is when Christ gets here and he accomplishes the plan of God from before even Genesis 1-1. Phase one you could think of as the Old Covenant. Phase two is the New Covenant. The law was preparatory. It was meant to pave the way to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Why did they need preparing though? God looked at all of human history all laid out before him. He's outside of time and he sees all of time. And God saw that at the perfect moment in time, the precise moment when he should send the Savior. And it's when he sent them, those 2,000 years ago. That moment in history, if you ever were to research that, it is fascinating that God chose that moment in time. Cohen Greek was the common language of that era. That meant that he could come and then the Bible could be written in that Greek language and it could spread like wildfire to most people who understood it even at a basic level. So the language barrier was very low for people from all nations to receive that message of Christ. Then you have the Roman Empire being in charge of Israel at that time. Why did that matter? Because Israel sat at a crossroads, a major trade hub from all these other nations. And because Rome was the empire kind of ruling it all, it made it to where it was more easily for the new church to start getting to all these other nations and share that message. Then Jesus is crucified under the Roman system who happened to do crucifixion. All of that fulfilled all of this prophecy stuff. The point is just simply again to stress why did God do it this way? Because this is the perfect way to have done it. It's the only way. 
He chose the time to send Jesus and chose that to prepare the way for Jesus. He would do all that stuff in the Old Testament law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says that Paul, that, excuse me, that Jesus came to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. I think I cut off verse 4 from your PowerPoint there, but verse 4 he says, in the fullness of times, meaning Christ came at the right time. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. At the proper time, at the fullness of times, meaning he came at the precise moment when God said, this is the perfect time to do it. And God knew that from before Genesis 1.1 and said, we're going to prepare the way through forming the nation of Israel, through having this law, so that people are crying out and longing for a day when the ultimate sacrifice will come. Well, then he says in verse 5, okay, so that's the law, and it was limited, so what did Christ do? Well, Christ came to fulfill God's will. What was God's will? That Christ would offer himself up, not as an animal sacrifice. He didn't bring an animal sacrifice. He would offer himself up, not other animal sacrifices. Verse 5, he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, now he's quoting here David from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. I won't read that to you, but you can look it up. So Psalm 46 through 8 is where he's pulling this quote here. And he says, Sacrifices and offerings you, that's God, have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So let me pause there. David, writing this, says, God, you don't desire in burnt offerings and sacrifices. But that's odd because God commanded burnt offerings and sacrifices. So if he doesn't delight in them, why did he command them in the first place? David had a different point. His point was he was reflecting on what God really wanted was obedience from the heart. He didn't want a ritual that people just came and offered sacrifices because they were told to do it. I mean, think about it. You've been told to do things and you do them because you're just told to do them. There's a difference in doing something because you're told to do it versus doing it because you want to do it and you think it's beneficial that you do it. David said, God, you don't just want us to offer sacrifices. That's not the point. You want us bringing sacrifices because we have a heart of repentance and a heart of obedience and faith. That's what you really want. Now, why does he quote this? Verse 7, he says, I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, David was sort of peering into the future, we believe, and he saw the time when the Messiah would come, and he quoted this here to say, there'll be a day when that one comes. And as it was recorded in the Bible, the book of the scroll, so to speak, the book of the law, he would come and fulfill the will of God. Well, Hebrews here takes that and says, that was Jesus. Jesus was picking up on Psalm 40 that David wrote thousands of years ago. It was really about Christ. And here's why it matters, what he did. Well, Jesus came to do God's will. What was God's will? Not that he offer a bull or a goat. He would come and fulfill that stuff in the Old Testament. Christ came to do God's will by offering up his own body as the sacrifice, not another animal. So in verse 9 here, he says, Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Now I want you to notice the end of verse 9. He, that's Jesus, does away with the first to establish the second. What he, all he simply means is when Jesus came and died on that cross, he accomplished God's will by offering himself as a sacrifice 
And what did he do? He did away with the the first, the Old Testament stuff, the law, the sacrifices. Not because they didn't matter, because they found their fulfillment in him. So there was no more need for it. He fulfilled it. And he established the second. What's the second? That new era, that new covenant that he would come and be the one-time offered sacrifice. Now look at verse 10, and this is his main point for this first section. There's really two verses you need to get out of all 18 of these, and it's verses 10 and 14. So I want you to have those in your mind. So here's the first one, verse 10. He says, okay, so by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So the first thing he draws out here is it was God's will that the Savior come and that by him giving up his own body as a sacrifice, it would sanctify, it would forgive, it would cleanse and make holy people for all eternity. The one time offered sacrifice of Christ would do this for people who have faith in him. Jesus offered his body as the sacrifice and its effect was good for all time, he says. And all he had to do was offer it one time. One time for all time. This was God's will the whole time. That's why I'm stressing in this first section, Christ's sacrifice is permanent. It's not temporary. It's not limited. It has permanent, lasting, eternal effect for the one who has received his sacrifice by faith. He offered himself up one time, and it's good for all time. I want you to see here again in verse 10. I want to break down some phrases here. He says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Who's the we, he says. He talks talks about a group called we. We have been. Who's we? Believers by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who can say they are born again forgiven because of their faith in Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. Believers in his resurrection from the dead, knowing that they'll have eternal life as well. That's the we. So real Christians, real born again people can say this is true about them. Well, what's true about them? The next phrase, have been sanctified. The word sanctified, you could substitute the word holy. It means two two ideas. In the one sense, it means you're set apart for only to be used for God's purposes. Not, Not for common use, for divine use. So on the one hand, we've been set apart to be special to God. But it does mean, on the other hand, holy as in without sin. Cleansed, morally cleansed, holy. So he says here, we, the believers by faith in Christ, have been sanctified or set apart or made holy. Now I want to draw your attention to something very important here. It says, I'm reading out of the ESV, they're very intentional in how they word this to draw out this point. It says, have been, that's past tense. In the Greek that this was written in, that's how it was written, past tense. It's called perfect tense, actually. And what that meant in their language was past tense, but it has an all-encompassing present reality. It's something completed in the past that you're sort of living in today. So what he's stressing here is what Jesus did when he died on that cross, he accomplished sanctification, he accomplished holiness for people who would believe in him, and it's settled and done, he's already secured it. It's already happened, it's in the past. So Christ's sacrifice on that cross then forgives people permanently. How? Because he's already accomplished it. It's perfect. It's already completed. Already done. If we are in Christ by faith, if that's true about you, then you can say something about yourself this morning. You can say with all seriousness, 
you are holy. You're already holy. You're a holy person. How are you holy? Not because you're perfect, not because I'm perfect, because the perfect Son of God has made us holy by His one-time offered sacrifice. He's already accomplished that for us, is my point. He's secured our holiness. So the reality is, if you belong to Christ through faith, you are already a holy saint of God. You are made holy. He secured permanently your holiness. That is your status. I want to emphasize the word status. Your status is you're holy and forgiven. It's already done. It's already settled. So that's his emphasis in verse 10 on the past tense. It's already happened, already been accomplished on your behalf. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can say, He has made me holy, past tense. He's made me forgiven, past tense. It's true about me. But the question, though, is this. But what about the sins I still have yet to commit? Because we know you could be saying, You can tell me I'm holy all you want, but I don't feel holy because I make mistakes still. Does that mean I'm no longer holy? What about the sins I'll do tomorrow? How can I still be called holy? Could I ever outsin God's grace? Could I ever outsin the potency of Jesus' sacrifice? Is there a limit to it, so to speak? The answer is no. And he's going to offer proof for that in the next section of how you could never outsin God's grace. You could never outsin Jesus' sacrifice. It's potency to keep you holy. He offered it one time, and it's good for all time. So the next section, then, what's the proof? Verses 11 through 18, now he'll say, okay, here's the proof that Christ's sacrifice works forever. He's going to give us some lines of reasoning here. The first one is, Christ is sitting down as a high priest. He's sitting down. Look at verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, by the way, can never take away sin. So he starts with the Old Testament priests. Aaron and those guys and on through down the line. We've talked about them before. He says, look, those guys stand. What does that mean? They still have work to do. They're not done with their work. They're still doing something over and over and over because their job is not completed yet. Again, stressing because what they offered could never lastingly save someone from their sins. They're continually offering sacrifices because they're limited in their effect. But look what he says about verse or Christ in verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, a one-time offered sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down. When you sit down, the image being conveyed is you're finished. You're done. There's no more work for you to do. You can rest. Why can you rest? Because you finished what you set out to do. If the Old Testament priests are still standing because they're not done, because they can't accomplish the task for all eternity, Christ as a high priest offers one sacrifice himself for all time and he can sit down because there's no more work for him to do to offer forgiveness for people. There's no more sacrifice for him to bring and offer. It's done. It's settled for all time. He quotes here Psalm 110 verse 1. David said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He uses this verse to say, look, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father as a high priest, meaning he, he's finished. It's done. What, what he did on the cross was good for all time. No more cross to die on for him. No more sacrifice to bring. He accomplished his work in the past, and it carries on into the future for all time. 
He sat down at the right hand of God in verse 13 says, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So again, he quotes both parts of Psalm 110 verse 1. He sat down, meaning he's done, and until his enemies are made his footstool. Jesus is sort of just waiting for that moment when you read the book of Revelation stuff, when God says, now's the time to go and call the rest of my people into glory and destroy all sin and evil. But the point he's making is when it comes to our salvation and forgiveness, there's no more offering for salvation to be had that Jesus needs to give. What he did one time in the past, those 2,000 years ago, is done, it's finished, it's settled. So he's using that as a proof to say it carries on into the future. It never stops. It never has any limit. By, by one offering, he says in verse 14 here, another big point, I told you, is verse 14. So look at it. He says, by a single offering, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. By one offering, Jesus has perfected God's people forever. That's his point here. This is a, I want to stress to you, this is a key verse. I want to spend a moment on it. Christ's sacrifice does not just forgive the sins of your past. Remember that first part was past tense. This is what he has done. He has made you holy. He has forgiven you. But what about the future? That's this part here. Jesus' one-time offered sacrifice in the past has consequences, so to speak, good consequences that carry on into the future. They carry on into eternity. So Christ's sacrifice doesn't just forgive sins of the past, his sacrifice forgives sins of the future too. Again, let's look at verse 14 and some phrases here. By a single offering, one time offered event, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time. Let me pause there. The phrase has perfected. We need to note that. Again, notice in the ESV, they're being very technical here to pull out the point. Again, this is past tense. This is something he has done in the past. Remember in verse 10, he has made us holy, he has sanctified. Now in verse 14, he has made us perfect. Past tense, it's something he's already accomplished in the past. It's done, it's completed. The word perfect doesn't necessarily mean morally perfect. It means this idea rather of completion. You had a goal, an objective, and you set out and you completed your objective. That's the idea behind the word perfected. So it's not necessarily moral perfection. He's not yet made us morally perfect day to day. We'll get to that in a moment. But yet Jesus has made us, he's already made us what we were supposed to be. What are we supposed to be? Holy and set apart. That word sanctified again. So he's stressing that there's a, a reality about us that's true. Whether you feel like it or not, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is true about you. Again, whether you feel like it on your worst day, here's the fact though. You are already made holy by the Son of God. He has already made you who you're supposed to be in God's eyes, holy and set apart. It's, it's already done about you. Again, you may say, but I have terrible days where I fall into sin. doesn't matter. I'm going to get to that in a moment, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't change your status before God. Your status is holy and set apart because he's already done it for you. So the big question, though, is this, but, but wait, it, we're not perfect yet. We still sin every day, don't we? How can I say that Christ has already made us holy? He's already made us complete, so to speak. And yet we know that in our day-to-day -day lives, we're not exactly what we're supposed to be. I mean, doesn't the Bible also teach this concept of growing in your holiness and overcoming sin? It does. Well, but here's the answer to how we 
deal with that tension. Look at the rest of the verse here. He says, by a single offering, again, past tense, he has perfected for all time. Goes on into the future for eternity. Here's the, the key to our question. Those who are being sanctified. Now he switches a little bit. Some translations just simply say the, the words are sanctified. If you have one of those, I'm not knocking it, but I want to make a point here that misses the nuance to this. And it's so fascinating to me. Because the verb here, sanctified, we've already talked about it, made holy, set apart. It is in the present tense. That means this. It's a present reality that you experience day in and day out. Past tense, it's already done. Present tense, you know what present tense means. It's right here, right now. So he says, past tense, you have been made perfect. You have been declared holy. But the present tense is those who are being sanctified. They're still in a process right now today of being made holy. Again, this sounds confusing, I know. But what he's stressing here is we do not accomplish our own holiness. Jesus does it for us. Our sanctification is something that happens to us, not because of us. It's because of what Jesus has done. Let me try to bring these two things together. In verse 10, remember he said, we have been sanctified. Past tense. The, he, the present reality, if you're a believer in Jesus, the present reality about you is this. You've already been declared holy and forgiven and sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That verse 10 put the emphasis of Jesus' sacrifice in the past, that he's already secured your salvation and your holiness for all time. It's a done deal. You're already declared holy. You could say again, I'm holy because Jesus' sacrifice has made me holy. So on the one hand, you can say my status is I'm holy. I've been forgiven for all eternity. But what about the other hand? That's verse 14. However, verse 14 puts the emphasis of our holiness as not yet complete. It's still in process. Christ has perfected, he says, past tense there. He has already secured perfection for his people. Who are his people? He says it's those who are being sanctified. Those who are in the process of being made more holy. This is the reality that he's getting at. On the one hand, Jesus' sacrifice, if you're here and you're a Christian through faith in Christ, on the one hand, it's already made you holy. You're, you're forgiven for all eternity. You're declared holy. He's, he has made you who you are supposed to be. It's already accomplished on your behalf. On the other hand, though, we know in our day-to-day -day lives we are not yet who we're supposed to be. We are not yet fully practically holy. We still have sins to overcome. Well, that was verse 14. Jesus is still in the process of making us holy in our daily lives. You are forgiven of your past, but you're also forgiven of your future sins and failures. How? Because of that verse 14. Jesus guarantees it. Jesus guarantees that when you sin and fail, it's not, oh no, now I need to get saved all over again. No, verse 14 says otherwise. It's not, oh, I need to get baptized again. Or, oh, I need to bring this animal sacrifice. That's what the Jews would have had to have done. I need to, I've become unclean because I did this over here. Now I've got to bring another sacrifice and be made clean again. That's not how it works anymore in Christ. Rather, it's, it's when we sin, we realize Christ has already provided the sacrifice to forgive those sins. Not just your past ones, 
your ones of tomorrow and next year and 10 years from now, when you sin, even though it's wrong and we shouldn't, you can though say, I don't have to get saved all over again. I just simply realize and call out and confess and claim, so to speak, the forgiveness Jesus has already guaranteed me because of his one-time offered sacrifice. What Jesus does is he works with us in our day-to-day lives. He keeps our holiness intact, so to speak. So even when you and I sin, that sin was not holy, but your status doesn't change as a child of God. Your status doesn't change as someone who is declared holy because of what Jesus has done. When we sin, Christ has already provided the sacrifice to forgive those sins. He has already made us holy when we sin, and he keeps us holy as well. He works with us as we grow into more holiness to overcome sins and gives us the assurance that even when we do sin, we are still forgiven. Forgiveness is already offered to you as a child of God. Now, I want to stress this is not an excuse to sin. It's rather a motivation to press on and keep going. I believe that's why he shared this with his people. They were coming under persecution, some of it physical persecution, societal persecution, pressures from family who had not come to Christ and were still Jews. They were going to probably family reunions and had maybe even mothers and fathers or brothers and sisters refusing to associate with them because they would dare claim that Jesus is the Messiah. Imagine the pressure they're under. Imagine losing your job because your boss hates the fact that you're a believer in Jesus. Imagine being thrown out of the synagogues. That was their life. That's where they would have their holiday festivals. That's where social life was lived out of was the Jewish synagogues. But imagine being told you're no longer welcome here because you believe in Jesus. They're under immense pressure to wonder, did we, did we get it wrong? Did we put our faith in the wrong guy? And he's stressing to them, no, don't think like that. Don't worry about if there's pressure on you. And in fact, don't, don't think that when you fall into sin, you've got to go back to this old way of thinking of, well, I've got to offer more then to be saved all over again. He's stressing, no, no, no. One time offered sacrifice of Jesus, good for your past, good for all your sins you're yet to do because he's already covered them. He's already offered forgiveness for them. And again, not an excuse, but a motivation. A motivation to say that, yes, when I fall into sin, I'm not going to say to myself, well, I guess God can't use me anymore. I guess he's done with me. I guess I've messed up to the point I'm just too much damaged goods in God's kingdom. He's trying to combat that thinking today. Say that is never true. There's, it's never true that if someone has a horrid past, that they could never say, well, I might be forgiven and go to heaven, but... I mean, God can't really clean up all that stuff, can he? Well, that's doubting the potency of Jesus' sacrifice. He would say, absolutely. He forgives any sin, fill in the blank, and he forgives them for all time. The question is, does someone want that forgiveness? Are they going to put their faith in Christ to be forgiven? And it's a great comfort to know that when you are trying to live the right life for God and you're trying to be holy and overcome sins, me included, we will fail. We will fail until we get to heaven. Well, what about that? Is it game over? No, that's what his point is. It's not game over for you. You can get back up, call out those sins. We are to repent and confess, but have the confidence that you don't have to beg God for forgiveness. You don't have to do so many things to be forgiven. It's already offered. It's already there. He's given it to you. 
past, present, and future. That's how effective his sacrifice is. Well, he says then in verses 15 through 18, his final point, if you want further proof, listen to the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit testifies about this as well. Because in verse 15, after the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, and now he's going to quote Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. He's talking about the new covenant. We've talked about that before. When Jesus came, he brought in the new covenant, his blood in the new covenant. Well, here's the point with that, verse 17. He quotes in Jeremiah again, Jeremiah 31, 34, when God prophesied thousands of years ago. God already told them he would do this. Because he says in verse 17, God talking here, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I won't hold it over their head. I won't keep reminding them of how bad of a person they were 10 years ago in their past life. God says, nope, no more. I will remember it no more. That's what he had planned to do in Christ. And so therefore then he can say his logical conclusion comes in verse 18. Okay, if the Holy Spirit prophesied that thousands of years ago, then where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. His point is, if God has promised to remember sins no more in Christ, that means then there's no longer a need for a fresh sacrifice for sins. There's no more need, no more sacrifice to be offered because his one-time offered sacrifice is done. God only looks at Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf and my behalf even in the midst of our sin. When you sin and you realize that sin and you call that out with confession, I, I don't know if you're like me, but I've been there. I've, I've had just moments of embarrassment and shame to the, to the point I might not even want to pray because I'm so embarrassed. I don't even want to talk to God. But the irony is it's the opposite. You should always go to God and trust, have a mental image in your mind that your heavenly father has open arms saying, I was waiting for you to come back to me. Because that forgiveness has already been offered past, present, and future. There's no need for continual sacrifices because Jesus, his sacrifice once was enough. And when we sin, he looks at Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. He doesn't just focus on, well, yeah, you messed up too much. Again, you can't out God. It's not a challenge. It's a comfort, though. First John says, I won't go into it all, but you can read First John chapters 1 and 2 and you'll find him saying something like this. We can never say we have no sin, because if we say we have no sin, we're a bunch of liars. But when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. So his point was there's two sides here to the Christian life. Don't say you're perfect and without sin. That's not true, and you and I know it. But yet when you do sin and you're not perfect, you can look back and say, but yet I have been made perfect. I have been forgiven. And he forgives me today and he'll forgive me tomorrow. What's our job? Call out with confession and repentance and have the confidence knowing no matter what you did he's always there to forgive you jesus offers forgiveness from our sins all of them past present and future that's how impactful his death on that cross was that should motivate us to move beyond our past i really feel for people who have a past i mean i'm, I'm thankful i was saved at the age of seven or so seven or eight it doesn't mean i was perfect but i've heard people's testimonies who were saved later in life, and they have this long life lived of just a lot of ungodliness. And you can hear it in their testimony how they're so thankful God finally saved them and they finally got their act together, so to speak, and realized their sins and called out to God, whatever age they may have been. But 
It could be easy, though, to look back at that past and say, God may have forgiven me, maybe I'm going to heaven, but I doubt he could use me because that past is pretty dark. But what he is stressing here is that is not true. It doesn't matter someone's past. If they're calling that out to God, they're saved and they're forgiven, then he says, really the reality is get over the past because Jesus has forgiven that past and he'll forgive your future too. It's a motivation to move on, to press on, to keep fighting the good fight of faith, to keep trying to live that life for the Lord until we get to heaven. I thought about how to maybe explain this, and I like the analogy of a race, like a running race, not a car race. But think of a person running in a marathon, and they have laps. Imagine you're this, this race runner, this marathon runner here, and your coach came and told you before the race even begins, they say to you, I want to let you know you've already won the race. You've already won. You've gotten first place. You say, but I haven't even ran the race. How have I gotten first place? And they stress to you again, no, no, you don't understand. You have won. It's already done. All you have to do is get on the track and cross the finish line. Your victory is already secured. What that means then is this. You're running that race on the track. That motivates you because you know, I've already won. I just have to cross the finish line and actually complete the race. Then that means maybe on lap one, you were running hard. You had your best time ever as a runner. Lap two, you trip and fall down. You say, oh man, like how can I, I, I can't win now because I've tripped and no, that wouldn't be true. The coach has already told you you've won. That means even if you trip and fall down and your time falls behind a minute or two, it doesn't matter. All you got to do is get up and finish. You could even walk if you need to. Just finish it. That's all you have to do. And you've already been guaranteed first place. That's sort of a picture I like to think of about the Christian life. When you repent of your sins that first time and put that faith in Jesus that first time and become a born-again child of God, you now begin your race, so to speak. That's living this life in the day-to-day. And you can know mentally, I've already won. I've already won it. I'm secured in heaven. I'm guaranteed salvation. Nothing's going to take that away, not even my own failures. So what do I have to do? Just finish the race. Just keep living your life, living for Jesus. And when you have a day, you fall and you fall into sin. Maybe a month where you fall into a season of sin. Just get back up, repent, confess, press on. It's already secured the victory. That is the forgiveness Jesus offers someone. Forgiveness of past, present, and future. And my prayer is, Christians, that you can have the greater motivation and confidence to press on no matter what. And if you don't know him, you need to know Jesus for the first time today to have that past forgiven and your tomorrow's forgiven too because he can, he offers that. I want to give us a moment to reflect. I'm going to offer a final prayer and Bruce and his people will come. And as we do, I'd ask that you, believers, you do. You, you ask yourself, what has maybe been holding me back to greater service and faithfulness because I'm, I'm not getting over something from the past because I'm just so ashamed of it and embarrassed let that go. Confess that to God and have the mental confidence. He's already forgiven you. You just had to ask. If you don't know him, come find me. I'd love to tell you how to know him today. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that your sacrifice was so effective because you offered yourself, not an animal. It was so effective, it covers my sins. It can cover anyone's sins who call out by faith. Sins of the past, sins of today and tomorrow. Jesus, would you let that drive us to seek greater holiness and greater efforts on your behalf, knowing that even when we fail, you forgive us. 
And if someone's here that has wrestled with wondering if they are a child of God and they're forgiven, would you have them come down today and just ask, how, how can I know Christ? How can I have my past and my tomorrow forgiven? In Jesus' name I pray.